The scripture today will be um, Psalm 132. You will find the first nine verses of the scripture on page eight in your bulletin. And reflected opposite that, you will find the remainder of the scripture, um, verses 10 through 18. Uh, First, please join me in a prayer for illumination. God of mercy, you promise never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. Then may we respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 132, a song of ascents. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp For my anointed one, I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sylvia has copies of the manuscript in case anybody would like one. This is one of those sermons that's not going to be finished till I'm done speaking today, but the manuscript's pretty close to what I'm going to say. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, it's good to be able to say that every week. You're my friends, but 
we are friends of Jesus. And he makes his intentions known to us because we're his friends. So friends of Jesus Christ, the book of Psalms that we've been living in all summer in our worship is a collection of 150 poems, prayers, and songs. But within that book of Psalms, there are smaller collections, and the most distinct and remarkable collection in the Psalter is a group of 15 psalms called the Songs of Ascent, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. The title, Song of Ascent, probably reflects what these psalms were used for or conceived for, for going up to Jerusalem, for ascending Mount Zion, for going up to worship in the house of Yahweh, the house of the Lord, the house of the I Am, and I will be with you, the covenant God of God's people. I think you can make a good case that Psalm 132 is the climax, the pinnacle, the peak moment, so to speak, in the song's of ascent. They don't get any higher than this. And in that light, I want to take a closer look at Psalm 132. I mainly want to think about this question, and I want it to be, as if it couldn't be, hanging over you as we worship this morning. How are we as Christians supposed to read and pray and live out this psalm? What is Psalm 132 saying to a small church? in a medium-sized city, in a large country, in a culture that's 3,000 years and 10,000 kilometers removed from places and events that the psalm looks back on. So that's where I want to go. I want to make some big connections. But first, before we bring this psalm home to our place and our time, we have to take the psalm on its own terms. We have to do some careful looking and listening. How did this psalm speak to its original audience? But even that's a bit of a problem. What do we mean by original audience? The psalm doesn't come with a date or an author. The psalm actually has several layers of history embedded in it. So we need to start with that, with a look at, at how Psalm 132 stacks those layers of history and makes that history reflect forward into the present and into the future. We need to trace the arc and follow where this psalm is coming from so that we can also understand where it's going and where it's leading us. So the psalm gives us some important clues about that. Let's start with a question. I always like to start with a question when I read scripture. What is this psalm, and specifically, is Psalm 132 a prayer? Some of the psalms are prayers. Some of the psalms aren't really prayers. Well, in fact, Psalm 32 is at least partly, perhaps mainly, a prayer. What are they? Well, they come, the specific petitions come in verse 1, which is at the top of page 8, and in verse 10, which is at the top of page 9, and I've laid this psalm out pretty carefully in the bulletin so that you can see the intricate structure of this psalm and, and see the parallels and the connections that it makes and line them up by sort of looking from page 8 across to page 9. So verse 1 says, Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. Verse 10 on the other page says, for the sake of your servant David, do not reject 
your anointed one. Remember David, and for David's sake, do not reject your anointed one. What kind of mood do these prayers arise from? What do they describe? A mood of confidence and peace? I think it's more like a mood of anxiety and uncertainty. Don't reject us. Remember us. Remember your promises. The mood is plaintive. It's, it's a weary and frightened voice out of the darkness. This psalm seems like the desperate prayer of a threatened, disempowered people, as Israel so often was throughout its history. Don't reject us. One of the things these two prayers form, naming David, is what we call an inclusio. They sort of bracket what's in between. What comes in between these two prayers? Well, you could say it's basically a review of Israel's history and two moments in particular. First, it commemorates David's expression of desire, his oath that he will not rest until he builds a house for the Lord. And second, it commemorates the moment when David's son Solomon built and dedicated the temple. The first stanza, four equal couplets, is all about David. And the second stanza, also four equal couplets, mainly echoes the prayer that Solomon prayed when he dedicated the temple. It's in the book of Chronicles. I think Second Chronicles 6, but I could be wrong about that. I forgot to write it down. Read it a lot this week. But the second stanza echoes the prayer of Solomon. And the focus of the whole first half of this psalm then, whole first half, the first half of the psalm is historical. It looks back on what you might call an ideal moment. But not just the moment, but on the significance of that moment. Israel was not just a historical and a political reality. Israel was also a theological reality. It was the one nation where the creator of all things and all people lived in that creation in the midst of those people. At one of the critical moments in Israel's history, when God gave the law, when God initiated the covenant with Israel, God also made this promise. It's in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. If you obey me fully, and if you keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that phrase, a kingdom of priests, echoes down through Scripture and through salvation history. Israel was a prototype of God's design for all humanity. God living in the midst of people and people serving God as a kingdom of priests, as a royal priesthood. And I, you know, I don't want to be sexist here. We're all called to share in that royal priesthood. So kings and queens, princes and princesses. But in Israel, there were two living symbols of this reality. The temple and the priests who served there, embodying God's righteousness and affecting God's righteousness, and the royal throne, and the king who reigned there, embodying and effecting God's justice. Both of those things are necessary. They don't merely symbolize God's presence in the midst of Israel, in the midst of God's people. They enact it. They don't just represent the ultimate human calling and destiny. They are the place and the means where it actually happens. The temple and the throne are points of contact between heaven and earth, between historical reality and 
eschatological reality, between what God has done in the past and what God will do in the future. And that's why the songs of a sense focus on Jerusalem and the two realities that represent God's presence on earth in the midst of humanity, the house of the Lord and the throne of the King. Check out Psalm 122 for just an example of that. I'm not going to read it. But in fact, there was only actually a very brief time when there was both a temple in Jerusalem and one king over all Israel. And that was the very last part of Solomon's reign. Maybe 30 years, maybe 40 years from the time Solomon dedicated the temple until his death. So maybe from 970, 960 until 930 BCE. A short time, a brief shining moment. After Solomon died, the kingdom was divided. Two centuries later, a mere two centuries later, in 722, the the, the, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And the southern kingdom of Judah fell when the Babylonians laid siege to its capital, Jerusalem, beginning in 589. And by 587, the temple was no longer standing. And God's people went into exile. And even though the temple was later rebuilt and destroyed again in 70 CE, 70 AD, 70 years after roughly the birth of Christ, even though history went on, there's never again been a king in Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu is not the king of Israel, right? Neither is Donald Trump. But here's what Psalm 132 is doing. It evokes this ideal historical moment, this moment of completeness when Israel had a king, one of David's sons on David's throne, and God was at home in the temple. It evokes that. It paints a picture of that, and that image persists throughout Israelite history, throughout Scripture, throughout Christian history, throughout the Psalter, throughout the centuries as a picture of hope and salvation. In fact, the farther Israel got from that ideal moment and from the reality that picture describes, the more important the picture became. That picture reflects a historical reality, something God did, a holy once upon a time, an anchoring point. But it also reflects an unseen reality, a not yet, where one of David's sons will rule on David's throne forever. A place in time where God will dwell in the temple forever and ever. An enduring, not a fleeting moment when the priests are clothed with salvation and the people of God sing for joy forever and ever and ever. Literally, world without end. Amen. That's not a historical reality. That's what we sometimes would call an eschatological reality, something that only comes about through the promises of God. But I do mean reality, as real as the eternal life God promises, but it's a not yet reality. But the second half of Psalm 132 comes as a powerful word of hope about that coming promised reality, an assurance that the not yet will become a now is. The dream will come true because God says it will. Psalm 132 is asking us not just to look back on something that God allowed to happen and caused to happen once upon a time, but to long 
forward for something that has yet to happen but will happen. The temple was built and the throne of David was established, not because of David's oath to God, but because of God's oath to David. Not because of David's capacity, but because of God's capacity. Stanza 3, verses 11 through 12, is parallel to stanza 1, verses 2 through 5. And David's oath to the Lord in in stanza 1 is now eclipsed by the oath that the Lord swore to David. And that's how the story went. When David promised to build a house for the Lord, for God's name, God said, no, 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 no. You're not even going to do it. It's going to be one of your sons. But I will build a house for your name. One of your sons will sit on your throne forever. God blesses David beyond David's capacity, beyond David's imagination. That's how God blesses. Always beyond our capacity. Always beyond our imagination. The Apostle Paul knew that, right? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all we can think or imagine. But stanza four in this psalm is the really interesting one to me because it's the only part of Psalm 132, well, say from verse 13 on, but especially I'm looking at 13 through 16. It's not at all backward looking. It's exclusively forward looking. It's overtly eschatological, not historical. It's not at all about the past. It's about the future. It's a new word from the Lord, a word of assurance and promise, an oracle that declares a hopeful future based on God's own word. It's a solid foundation that shines light in the darkness of an uncertain and unbuilt present and future. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. More than the people could ever want it. God wants it. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I I will clothe her priests with salvation. Her faithful people will ever sing for joy. And this is a moment when I really want you to look across the page. Do you see how Solomon's request in verse 9 becomes God's promise in verse 16. Solomon prayed, may, may your priests be clothed with your righteousness. In verse 16, God personally owns the outcome of that. I will clothe her priests with salvation. The petition of David's son Solomon, may your faithful people sing for joy, becomes God's solemn and eternal assurance. Her faithful people will ever sing for joy. And notice this, this isn't just a promise to David. And it's not just a promise to David's physical descendants. God's making a promise to all of the people whom the son of David governs. There will, again, be a son of David. This is all through the Old Testament. I think it's, it's so beautifully embodied in the prophecy of, of Zechariah, who says the Messiah will be a priest on his throne, that the two Offices, the two functions will be embodied in the same person, a royal priesthood embodied by a royal priest. And I want to submit to you that these things have now come true in Jesus Christ. There is now a son of David who is and always will be a priest on his throne. And our hope is that we will and that we do share in his royal priesthood. This is our calling This is our destiny. This is our reality in Christ. And I hope this psalm comes to us out of that 
past and out of that future that Psalm 132 describes as a word of assurance at a pretty uncertain time for us. I've been planning to preach this Psalm 132 on this date for at least a couple of months now. Was it early June that we firmed up the preaching schedule, Jim? And of course, I did have in the back of my mind the ongoing work of Space Force and our search for a resting place for Geneva. By the way, um, one person who didn't get a shout-out today that probably should is Adam Jeske, who came up with the acronym, Seeking a Place to Accomplish Christ's Endeavors for Future Opportunities of Redemptive City Engagement. Yes. One thing I didn't plan, though, is the timing of the council retreat or the report that you all got of that retreat this morning or the distribution of this prayer card, but I think it's all coming together. I think Psalm 132 really is speaking into our circumstances, and in most ways, I don't really want to look too hard at our circumstances. I want to look at God. I want to look at the place that God is ultimately taking us because that's what will sustain our hope. God is leading us to a reality that looks and sounds like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is from the book of Revelation, of course. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them them and be their God. And I'm not even going to read the rest of it because you probably know it by heart. The point is there is a king on the throne. There is a God living in the midst of humanity and that's our destiny and that's our calling. That's what salvation looks like and we aren't there yet. It's still mainly a not yet reality but we're getting closer and closer to that reality. As Paul says in Romans 13, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. But people of Geneva in 2019, just as God allowed David's desire to converge with God's desire, just as God allowed Solomon's work to serve God's purposes, God is calling us to the work of building a temple. And I don't at all mean a church building. The true temple, the true dwelling place of God is the people of God. A temple built of living stones. We're part of that temple that God is building. And that's where our focus always needs to be. But God calls us to build the church with Him. It's not just God's work. And one of the things Psalm 132 describes is is a simultaneous work between humanity and God. A synergism. God calls us to add our faithfulness to His faithfulness, to align our intentions with God's intentions, to join with God in the work God is doing. God has poured out spiritual and material gifts on every member of the body of Christ, to quote Scripture from Ephesians 4, so that the body of Christ may be built 
up. It's a building project. My job description as pastor comes from that same chapter, and yours as members of the body of Christ comes from that same chapter. God appointed pastors and teachers, quote, to equip God's people, that's us, for works of service, that's ministry, diakonia, so that the body of Christ, that's us, may be built up. That's God's work, but also our work. We have to do that work with God's promises in mind and in God's strength, with an eye on future glory, but also we have to do that work in real space and real time with another eye on the here and now. So we need vision and we need spiritual gifts to do that spiritual work, but we also need to use the material gifts that God has poured out on us. The practical wisdom for the administration of those gifts. We need visionary people, but we also need people who are going to say, how are you going to do that? We need answers to everyone's questions. We, but we need spiritual and material things. We need budgets and bookkeepers, brooms and babysitters, and of course, a building. And we're coming to a defining moment. This week, we'll pass the three-year mark of the time remaining on our lease. The clock is ticking. It's now two years and some change. That's not that much time. Until, until what? We don't know exactly. We don't have a clear plan with all the steps laid out. But the sisters and the brothers you've called to be your leaders are trying to get us there. And they want you to help. They want you to pray. They want you to talk. They want you to be on your knees. We need to develop a plan that will allow us to keep doing the work of ministry that God has called us to here in this congregation and here in this city. Psalm 132 always calls us to walk by faith, to look forward to the place God has in mind for us in the confidence that God will lead us there. Psalm 132 looks forward, but as I said, it also looks back. It is historical as well as eschatological, and I just want to remind you of a little bit of Geneva's history. We've been in a place like this before. When Geneva got the news 14 years ago that we would have to leave Prez House, that came as a shock. That was hard for all of us. It was as hard for me as it was for anyone. I got married in Prez House. I'd never known. Remember, Beth? We sang glorious things of thee are spoken at our wedding. I had never known any home for Geneva going back to 1980. And here in 2004, we had no idea, or 2005, where we would end up. That summer, I preached on the Songs of Ascents. In fact, on August 28, 2004, 2005, it was August 28 anyway, it was 14 years, so it was... 2005. I preached on Psalm 132. I didn't look up what I said. I'm not recycling the sermon. I never do that. (laughs) But going through the songs of ascents through that whole summer helped lead us into a deeper trust in God. We prayed and we trusted. We prayed and we trusted and we waited and God led us here to the crossing. Now it looks like we probably can't stay here. And even if we could, I'm not sure that we should. This isn't, in fact, just up to the crossing. We aren't helpless and disempowered. We have the Spirit of God and the power of God. 
And it's, to some extent, it's up to us. We have some say in the matter. We can choose a different future. But here's the point. It's God who controls the future. And it's not so much about what we desire. It's not about figuring out what we want. It's trying to walk into what God wants. It's not so much about what we desire and what we're willing to promise God. It's about what God desires and what God promises us. But part of the message of this psalm is that our promises to God and our faithfulness to God also matter. God's promises to us converge with our promises to God. And our faithfulness is meant to converge with God's faithfulness. So yes, we're called into a royal priesthood that is not of this world, but it operates in this world. While we do live in this world, what sense of priorities shapes our living? Just a nod to David. I will not rest until I find a resting place for the Lord. In what sense are we called to embody that? What does it look like for us to build a house for the name of the Lord? I think the next month or two, we'll have a lot to say about that. We'll have a lot to do with shaping Geneva's future. And I don't think it's a now or never moment. I'm not trying to ring loud alarm bells. But it is a moment in which our decisions might have an effect for generations. If you walk three blocks down University Avenue, Avenue, you'll walk past several churches that are there because someone generations ago made some sacrificial decisions and followed where God was leading. We can possibly do that too. Maybe God is leading us there too. What we do know is that we can benefit from a look at history, God's faithfulness in the Bible. God's faithfulness in our own lives, God's faithfulness in Geneva's history. And we can always claim the promises of God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans for good and not for evil. Those promises are always yes and amen in Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. If the temple and the throne of David were points of contact between heaven and earth, between history and eschatology, so is the church. The church is a point of contact between heaven and earth. The church is a point of contact between what God has done and what God will do. The church is a point of contact between the present in which we live and the future into which God is calling us. So here and now, we can, we do, and we must continue to participate in the royal priesthood of Jesus Christ. And all that means is nothing more and nothing less than this. We offer who we are and what we have to God and trust that God will use it as God sees fit. The Lord swore an oath to David. The Lord has sworn an oath to us. The Lord has promised us eternal life, and whatever we give up, we'll get it back thousands and thousands and thousands of times. I guess that's the word of the Lord.